You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. We are at CNU24 in Detroit in the Detroit Opera House. And I have with me returning guest from Placemakers, Hazel Boris. Hazel, welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. Thanks. It's very fun to be here. How many times have you... Is this three or two? I This is only two for me. Okay. I know we chatted last year. I wanted to have you back this year because I wanted to talk about some of the work that you've been doing at Placemakers. And so you brought along with you... Uh, the eye candy of this presentation, right? <laughs> For those two, two of her favorite clients. <laughs> that is right. Uh, we've got Joe Cosentini. Is that how I would say it? That's right. All right. Perfect. And Andrew Blake. Yes, sir. Joe, you're from Tennessee. Thompson Station, Tennessee. All right. And Andrew, you're uh, from Ranson, West Virginia. Yes, sir. One of the most tumultuous states in the, in the country right now, right? Right now. It's, uh, it's fascinating. We maybe will talk a little bit about... Uh, both of those places. Hazel, can you just talk a little bit about, l- let's, let's talk about, uh, the Tennessee project first. Tell me, Thompson. Thompson's Station. Thompson's Station. Yeah, it's about 30 miles south of Nashville. How in the world did you get a name like Thompson Station? Because uh, there was a guy named Thompson. It's and that literally was... named after the founder. Yeah. So oh, okay. Yeah, so it, was, uh, it was founded by uh, Elijah Thompson. And there was a, uh, actually a train depot that right there, and it was, literally a train stop so it was thompson station how did you how did you two get together um actually i owe a lot of credit to ranson um during their project i was actually the city manager in charlestown west virginia which is right there next to ranson and i got to work with placemakers uh through that process and when i uh got the gig in thompson station um one of the things that they were hoping to do was change how development was happening around them they it's actually a very rural community uh that were actually um looking to do uh, just different development. Um, so actually the first organization that popped into my head was Placemakers, and we had such a good experience working with uh, Susan and Hazel um, there in Ranson that uh, I actually reached out to them, and they came and helped us out. What were the challenges walking in the door? I mean, when they talk about a rural, you, you didn't like the development going on around you? Right, because we're, again, 30 miles south of Nashville. Uh, yeah, Franklin, Tennessee is just to our north. Spring Hill, Tennessee is just to our south. Those are kind of booming suburbs of, of Nashville, uh, Thompson Station largely undeveloped, and we didn't, I guess the people there didn't really like seeing, uh, I guess, the sprawling development that was kind of happening around them. Actually, that was one of the reasons why Thompson Station was incorporated uh, at all, and it, it's only been incorporated since 1990. Uh, so it incorporated because it didn't want to be a part oh, really? of that sprawl. So it's like, defensively, we don't want to be what these people are right now. Right, right. Let's do something different. Exactly. So, okay. So again, uh, we knew we had to have a different kind of code, and uh, again, there wasn't a lot of that uh, readily available in Tennessee, so again, we reached out to the placemakers. Talk a little bit about what you guys did. Technical. Get, let's get technical a little bit. <laughs> and, and I can't sing when I answer the question. Oh, you can sing. No, I won't sing. Uh, but So technically, we came in to write a land development ordinance, and one of the things I love about this one and uh, it is that it actually is a hybrid between a form-based code and a use-based code. Okay. And it takes all of, uh, you know, the street standards and a lot of the engineering 
and brings it into the code itself. And it's a total rewrite. So it doesn't just leave the, you know, ugly stepchild view space code looking less than great, but it actually treats both with the same graphic uh, treatment and therefore, but it also really streamlines the process and doesn't have to make both the, the public planners and the private planners deal with two different hierarchies and two right. different documents. So it's just this one document. Everybody's treated the same, it, but it, it delivers two very different sort of development patterns. Talk a little bit about the, it, just from it, because I did ask you to get technical and then you did. And I want to make sure that, <laughs> I want to make sure that everybody knows. And I, I know the difference between a U-space and a form-based code, but there may be some people listening who don't. Can okay. you just give us like a, a brief overview of what you mean by that? Perfect. A, a U-space code is what, or it's also called Euclidean zoning. Now you're really technical. Oh, sorry. I'll step back. So it basically separates all of the different uses and puts residential in one place and commercial in another place and all of our civic uses like schools and post offices and places of worship in another place and insists on wide, fast roads connecting all those. And it's really tough on the economy and the social structure and the environment. Uh, and it really doesn't respond very well to market demands because now we have boomers and millennials saying, hey, I'd like to be able to walk to some place from my house or my office, and it doesn't do that for you. So that's a use-based code that separates out all the uses and doesn't care too much about the form. And a form-based code says, hey, if those uses are compatible, let's mix them together, let them coexist in a neighborhood that you can walk and bike to different things. And like our family's a one-car family because we live in an old neighborhood that really all of our old neighborhoods grew up organically before zoning and subdivision regulations in a sort of form-based environment. So those places really fit really well under a form-based code but also places like Thompson Station who want to encourage more of their town center environment and more of that market-responsive sort of places, the form-based part of their code lets them do that, while the use-based part says, okay, there's also other parts of our town that aren't going to redevelop in the near term, and we don't want to make that legal Non-compliant, Ooh, right? Is that too? No, much? no. Okay. I, it, you, we don't want to make it so what you built before is illegal. That's right. right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So we don't make it, want to make it hard for you. So this, we still keep that in place. This is why city managers' hair turn white when planners or right. walk in the door <laughs> or, or fall out. In my case, so <laughs> let me let me ask this: You're a rural area. We are. The response in most rural areas to bad growth, to the really nasty stuff, is to say we don't want any growth. Like we're going to shut down. Mm-hmm. What What was the the mental process that actually got you to the point? where you said, we're going to have growth. We want it to be in a really good form. Well, I think just just our location in general. Being so close to Nashville, Nashville is kind of getting a name for being an it city or if it's not already an it city. So a lot of people are looking at the area, and we know people are going to come. Again, we can just see it kind of all around us. So we know it's going to come in. And we wanted to be, you know, a, a, a the next kind of cool hip place to be. Uh, but we also didn't want to lose that rural character. So that's why the, the form-based code uh, was so good because uh, Thompson Station is largely undeveloped. So we wanted to maintain a lot of rural green space in between kind of these clusters of very dense urban development and then connect them not only with you know the big, large roads to get everybody back and forth, but also with greenway trails. And so everybody could walk or bike, uh, but still drive around to each of these different, uh, let's just call them pockets of economic prosperity within sure. town. Sure. 
it sounds like I maybe should have started with Ranson because you're the, <laughs> the epicenter of this thought process. So let's go back in time a little bit. Um, you, you jettisoned off uh, Joe here. Talk a little bit about, first of all, you, you gave me some hand thing. Where is Ranson? <laughs> so let's start with that. Where is Ranson? Well, the hand thing might be a little X-rated, so we won't, okay. do, we won't share that. Because this, this is the one with the middle finger to describe, right? Describe West Virginia. The, the West Virginia, the, Virginia bird. Uh, yes. <laughs> Michigan has a little bit of the same. Yeah, I saw yesterday when he started to do the palm, like, here's Michigan. I'm like, is this going to get vulgar? And then it didn't. But the West Virginia one it has a little vulgar. bit of vulgarity to it, right? So Ranson is about 45 minutes from Dallas International Airport. Okay. So we are in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Right. Um, our town's a little different. Our town was a, um, the industrial hub of Jefferson County. We had the, um, if you have fire sprinklers in your commercial building, they're probably manufactured in Ranson at one time. We had one of the largest vending machine manufacturers in the world. We had a foundry. Well, like many manufacturers in this country, they're all gone. There's not one manufacturing job in the city of Ranson. Wow. We have about 5,000 people in Ranson. We had 10 years ago, there were 2,800, so we're growing. But the city is originally 640 acres, and over the last 15 years, we've annexed about 7,000 vacant acres, which during before the recession, all of them had developers or development plans. The reason why placemakers came in, um, I'm not a planner by by education, I went to law school. Uh, back in 2004, I worked for one of the largest law firms in West Virginia, and the city of Martinsburg, which is a top 10 city in West Virginia in the Panhandle, their lawyer died. And I was a lonely a lowly associate at the time, and one of the partners came and says, would you like to be the new planning and zoning lawyer for the city of Martinsburg and their prosecutor? <laughs> I said, sure. I guess, yeah, sounds like an advancement. Yeah. I had no idea what planning and zoning was, but right. I started learning. And um, I would sit in these planning commission meetings, and I would look at the rules, and I'm like, this just doesn't really make sense. <laughs> really? <laughs> Sometimes it takes an outsider to come in and tell you that, right? Yeah. 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 I could just, we were having these debates and I'm like, you know, I would quietly sit there because my client was the planning commission and I would do what they wanted to do. Right. But in 2006, I became the in-house attorney for the city of Ransom. At the time, the city manager and I started having chats and like, we've got to do something different because Ransom didn't even have a subdivision ordinance until 2004. Okay. We've got to do something different. So I started doing some research and I found this like 70 page zoning ordinance. I'm like, well, this is cool. And it was called the smart code. And yeah. I started reading it. I didn't understand a lick of it, to be honest. Uh -huh. But it sounded neat. So I went to Atlanta. And I went to one of Hazel's smart code intensive workshops. I, I went to one in um, South Beach, Miami. <laughs> and had the same, like, oh my gosh, I found, I found the answer. Well, my answer came when the speaker said, raise your hand if you have to get in your car to buy a loaf of bread. And the whole room <laughs> raised their hand. Yeah. And I'm like, this is crazy. So Ransom was very lucky. You know, sometimes hard work and luck kind of mesh up. Sure. So after um, the president was elected, of course, he had a stimulus plan. And, you know, our mayor at the time wrote a letter saying Ransom has needs. Well, it just turned out that the, the Obama administration started the Partnership for Sustainable Communities. Right. We knew what we needed. So we applied for a HUD planning challenge grant. 
a DOT Tiger grant, an EPA uh, area-wide plan, and we're the only, other than Denver, Colorado, the only city in the country to get all three grants. We got the wow. trifecta. What's your population? 5,000. Incredible. So we got, we literally got millions of dollars to do a brand new form-based code, uh, a comprehensive plan, an area-wide Brownfields redevelopment plan downtown, the engineering and planning for a complete 1.5-mile uh, complete street, which is currently under construction, because we've got a Tiger II grant and a Tiger IV grant, probably one of the only cities in the country to get both of those. And so we started the process. We, 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 got, we applied for the grant, and this is the truth, on the city's uh, birthday in October 2010, we got three calls immediately from DOT, EPA, HUD said, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. Wow. Well, that was just the start of the work because getting the grants one thing, but you know we had literally thirty consultants come into the city of Ranson, and I sometimes say it was like a self-imposed prostate exam, yeah, because <laughs> they yeah. tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, right, right. And really, in in a really compacted amount of time, we adopted all of this, and I think that we have laid the foundation for the future. But one of Hazel's former colleagues, you know, used to say. Here's some advice. Implement it and get out. I didn't take that (laughs) advice. Sometimes I wish I would have because, you know, sometimes there's frustration involved in, you know, enacting new form-based zoning and trying to get your development community to understand what it means. Right. But we've had some short-term success. So why we did it was we basically, for two reasons, our economy, the whole reason for Ransom's basis of existence had disappeared. We were not a manufacturing hub anymore, so we needed to redevelop our old town. And to me, as a city manager responsible for the budget, to me this is all about economic sustainability. I knew that there was no way that we could do 7,000 acres of single-family, quarter-acre housing because if you look at the property taxes that that the average resident pays – they do not uh, pay for the services that are provided by the city. You're nodding your head. And I think that Detroit is a perfect example of what happens when you have unsustainable development patterns way out in the urban edge. Right. So that's kind of our story. Can you talk a little bit, Hazel, about Ranson, the kind of the approach you took there, some of the stuff you had to deal with? Well, for both Ranson and Thompson Station, I think that the stuff I had to deal with was so much at a higher level than most places just because having a city manager in both in both municipalities that were fully engaged in the charrette process before we ever rolled into town and were educating themselves and were incredibly knowledgeable both about their problem set. And the hardest thing really in any master plan or form-based code or policy plan is to understand what your problem set is. And because they understood their problem set so well, it was so much easier for us to roll in and help with that. Now, the two the two jobs were, one was massive and one was lean. <laughs> Strategic. Right. And <laughs> right. so it was kind of cool in both cases that that sort of local vision and leadership. And Andy, I'm so glad you didn't implement and get out because I would have just been <laughs> right. super sad because you have to have a vision keeper and you two are both such great vision keepers. And I think that that's why both of your your local places are so lucky to have you. But so so having that concise plan was concise understanding of the problems was the greatest thing in both cases. So rolling into Ranson, we were managing the charrette process for three different 
teams, uh, the Brownfields team, the transportation team, and our team. So it was the great thing about that. It was awesome to have that many, much of a brain trust under one roof for an extensive time period. But it was also getting a lot of people to agree, uh, you know, from the, 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 private planner side of what what our collective vision was and so for me I didn't want to move a curb that I didn't have to I didn't want to take down a building that I didn't have to and some people wanted a different approach so sure. that was kind of one of the the biggest for me uh, frictions is is kind of navigating that sort of internal planning um, direction yeah. but I think that we we made it through that with a few cuts and bruises, but but nothing big. So. It, it was a, a sight to see. The third floor conference room of Ranson City Hall was just packed with people. Really? It was all consultants, all trying to you know figure out these three very large programs. It, yeah. was, it was very we, entertaining to watch. Part <laughs> of our RFP process when we received all three grants, working with our federal partners, they allowed us to mesh those grants together. So one of the um, requirements in the RFP that all the consultants under all three of those grants had to work together. So we had stormwater consultants, transportation consultants, planning consultants, environmental consultants, all in one retail. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we had them all come together. So we do a marketing plan. We could do how does the stormwater get factored in. So it was pretty incredible. Um, You know, and then everyone leaves. Yep. And then it's left to your staff to implement. And, you know, it's a learning curve for the staff. But I also say that as city managers, we can only provide recommendations of what we think is best for our community. And the reason why we were successful is because we had policymakers and elected officials that were open to this and that they were uh, supportive. And, you know, there's a lot of city councils that aren't willing to spend money for planning because they don't, it doesn't have immediate results. You know, politicians get elected a lot of times on short-term results, and zoning ordinances sometimes take a generation to pan out. Right. I'm not going to know how effective our zoning ordinance is probably for 15 years. Well, that's not usually the time span of an elected official. You know, our mayor just died in. Your mayor passed away, right? After 30 yep. after 30 years, and he was very supportive of this because he saw the long-term vision. He also was the mayor at the heyday of the of Branson's industry. So he had started to wow, see the that's transformation. A, that's an intellectual journey, yes. right? Yeah. So yeah. he took both the, you know, he took the bruises from when those manufacturers left, and he also started getting the accolades when the new development started coming in. You know, Branson's now the home of, and Charlestown's the home of the second largest online university in the world with American, American Public, Public University. Mm-hmm. We have a $13 million complete street going in. We have private development that's coming in. We have a long way to go. If you come to my city and you look around, you're going to be like, why is he at CNU and what, what, you know, we have a long way to go. We have made a lot of progress, but you know, there's a lot of days where I get very frustrated when I drive down the street and then I realize, oh, I'm in a position where I can do something about that frustration. So. Well, talk to me. Here's what I want to know from both of you. What, what has been the reaction of your population? I mean, you, you had this kind of uh, longstanding mayor. I don't know what your political process has been in, in uh, Thompson Station, but you know, you, you bring in this 
set of consultants and people to help you out. And I know, you know, Hazel, their group is so great at engaging people. They really are. In a way that is very, uh, I, I see a lot of these people very patronizing when they come in and engage and, and you're just so there and, and, you know, earth like down in the, you know, like let's, let's really deal with this. What was the reaction of your residents during the process, and then what has it been subsequent? How, how has this been received? Sure, sure. And, uh, and I'm not asking for all the happy stuff either. I know that these are not. If, if we well, just there's say, naysayers too. That oh my better, gosh! Better you know, if, if 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 we just pretend like it was all perfect, no one's going to believe us because mm-hmm. I, I I know these things are hard. Mm-hmm. Well, just to uh, I guess emphasize what Andy said. You know, the political leadership really is necessary before you even get started. And if they're not willing to kind of follow along the process, then you're kind of doomed from the beginning. And we're, we were lucky to have a group of people in place that, you know, recognize the importance of doing things a little bit differently than uh, what had been going on. Um, so having that support and allowing us to go out and start talking to people, it's like, you know, when placemakers hit the ground uh, in Thompson Station, you know, we had a, a big marketing campaign to try to get everybody to come out and uh, participate in the Shred process. And they did, which was, it was good because everybody was really interested in what was happening, even if they didn't really know what we were going to be talking about. Um, so getting everybody in the room and being able to explain to them, we don't want to be the same thing as everybody else around us. We want to be a little bit different. Um, and they bought in right away. And a lot of them you know, recognized that in order to be sustainable and still maintain that rural atmosphere of Thompson Station, we had to do things a little bit differently. Otherwise, we were going to have you know, houses kind of spread out uh, all over the place. And you um, had also that great benefit of a financial genius as a mayor who, you know, his day job is is to, to make the numbers work. And so he also really brings that to the table. And he was there in the welcome wagon for us and fully engaged in the process all along. He really was. Yeah, he has the finance background. So he saw very early on that the economic model that we were traveling down wasn't going to be, wasn't going to work. Um, so it was good. Now, again, there's, there's still those people that don't quite understand why we would want to do something differently because they don't they don't see the you know the the sausage being made behind the scenes right. like Andy and I do on a daily basis. So uh, showing that to them in a way that they'll understand, and even if they don't buy in a hundred percent, at least they understand why we're trying something a little bit differently. And then keeping them on the same page and, and you know keeping them up to date on how we're progressing through the not only the adoption process but the implementation process um, uh, was. I guess an, an interesting engagement either online or have, as people would come into town hall and just, you know, just sit down and talk to uh, myself or our town planner or our staff that was there and being able to explain that to them. That, that, you know, this is why we're doing this. And again, even if they weren't uh, 100% on board with it, they, at least they understood. Mm-hmm. But when we first rolled into town, I couldn't say the word multifamily housing <laughs> without people, you know, freaking either, out, either starting to, yeah. uh, come forward in their seat or else raise their voices. So sure, right. it went, we had to really do a lot of illustrations. We had Andrew Von Mar and um, Paul Crabtree with us right. on, on that charrette, and they were great at doing some illustrations to really help people understand what we're talking about. So we went from kind of an adversarial first night to, I think, a standing ovation the last night, or oh, else, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it was. 
and again, being able to show that picture because Andrew did a great job illustrating everything, um, and just being able to literally show it to people. It's like you know, if we adopt this code and we follow the rules that we're saying, it might not happen tomorrow or next year, but if we continue uh, with this process, these these are what these uh, areas of town could really look like. The picture is so incredibly important. I cannot stress how important the picture is. Our millions of dollars have stemmed, frankly, from pictures. American Public University stemmed from a picture that was drawn in 2003 and really wasn't constructed until 2010. American Public University wasn't even on the scene at the at the time. If you can show the residents what this could look like, whether it's Fairfax Boulevard, old foundry site, an old scrapyard, it's so important. And to come back to what you were saying, when I went through the interview process to select these consultants, in the back of my mind was, how are these people going to fit in with my community? Because if I have someone coming in that doesn't fit within the, you know, in my case, a blue-collar aspect of my community, I'm wasting a lot of taxpayer funding. Right. You've got to have someone that can connect because if you don't, you're just wasting your time. And I still remember I started in Charlestown in 2005 as their city clerk, and I still remember the small-scale model of a building. Uh, they're sitting in our council chambers that ultimately 10 years later ended up being the uh, American Public University Academic Center. So it was, wow. it was really cool. Yeah. And i, I got to say, uh, in terms of Joe's, uh, about economics, I do not use smart growth or anything back in my city. To me, it's You mean as a term? As a term. Yeah, yeah. To me, we're building the best community we can build. We're building neighborhoods, not subdivisions. And when developers come to City Hall and they ask me, what is this uh, new zoning about? I look out the window because we've done pilot projects outside of City Hall to show what the zoning is. You know, we have street, we, we built streets that have 10, 10, 8, 8 and, and sidewalks <laughs> and everything that wonky planners get. <laughs> 10 foot travel lanes. 10 foot yeah, travel yeah. lanes, <laughs> 8 foot parking, you know, go, I call them go, uh, golf cart path. Uh, right, right. <laughs> golf cart path travel lanes. Uh, and Your truck still fits down. Don't worry. My yeah. truck does. I still don't tell the planners. I still have an F-150, but don't tell the yeah. planners that. They're serviceable. Yes. <laughs> but the biggest, you know, you asked, what is the biggest criticism that we've had? Our criticism has come from mass home production builders. Sure. Who cannot understand why in our market that they can't build a front-loaded garage um, curb-cut product because we require 70% of the product to be rear loaded. In T3, which is another wonky term for form-based zoning, yeah. we allow front-loaded garages. Um, that has been our biggest thing. And I got to tell you, I, you know, if, if I totally agree with Mayor Riley from Charleston. If it's not going to add value to your city, don't do it. And you know, this may not be a popular thing, but I have told developers across the table, we are not your litter box. If you want to build that product, there are places for you. Our city is not one of those. And thankfully, I've had the political will behind me to support that. Um, we want something that's going to be sustainable. We don't want, frankly, crap. Which is really incredible in West Virginia. And I don't, I, I don't say this in any type of a disparaging way, but West Virginia is not a... You're a little bit in the D.C. market, so you may be a little bit different, but it's not a place that has been like rolling in development options. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, because that kind of I, it's, it's one thing to say no when you have you know, right. 50 people lined up and you can pick the two you want. 
but but sometimes you know I get the beggars can't be choosers kind of thing. But you're saying Mayor Riley is right. You've got to be choosy. It's got to add value. I agree because you know short term gain has long term cost. Not all development is good development. It's just not. And I think that I can show you know the council can see some development choices that were made in the past that has panned out, which has actually helped my cause a little bit. And the other thing that I'll say with regards to West Virginia, I'm originally from the center part of the state, which you're right. It does not have much. The, you're, you're from this. The, I, the I'm from <laughs> I'm from the middle part. The lower the middle finger. The, Let's just the, call it the, the heart. The, uh, the heart. <laughs> so you yeah, can't see this uh, <laughs> uh, through the through the screen, the radio. But uh, yeah, we're. We're giving each other the bird here. <laughs> we're giving, like Scott, if I walk in by, it's like West yeah. Virginia. It's right here. It's right here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, if you Google now, um, I mean, uh, just put, uh, I think, the West Virginia West hand. Virginia state bird. I think yeah, state really bird. I think that's what it's called. It has different cities. <laughs> so West Virginia is struggling. I yeah. mean, if anybody has seen the news, West Virginia right. is very much struggling. Yeah. Now the Eastern Panhandle, where we are in the we're in the metropolitan statistical area of Washington D.C. We are officially in that area. Eastern Panhandle is growing. Procter and Gamble was building one of the largest manufacturing sites in the country. The first one they built in 1970, ten minutes from where we are. You can take Macy's. the rail from yes from Ranson to D.C. Every morning, the commuter train comes from Ranson to Washington. The main Amtrak line from Chicago to Washington goes right through our town. But what we're concerned about local municipalities in West Virginia right now is the state budget picture. The state budget right now is about $300 million in the hole. The legislature cannot agree on a budget. The governor just vetoed the budget yesterday. The physical, the year starts July 1st. You know, the state collects uh, um, some of our revenue, some of our tax revenue, and distributes it back to us. So we are very concerned. We cannot control our own destiny. We are relying upon the capital. And that's the one thing that really bugs me sometimes is that I'd rather be able to control my own destiny. Right. In Charlestown and Ranson a couple years ago, you know, West Virginia is a Dillon rule state, which means that cities only have those powers granted to it by the legislature. Well, there was a home rule pilot project a few years ago, and we were selected, which means that we can, we can develop laws and pass laws Outside, we can change any state legislation as long as it's not doesn't um, violate the constitution. Sure, with a couple exceptions. That's a great tool to have when you're talking about economic development, planning, because you can control your own destiny. But when you have a state that's in financial dire straits, it really affects it affects the bond rating, it affects the economic outlook, it affects you know Fortune 500 companies coming. Why do they want to be part of a state where workers' comp rates could go up, liability could go up? And really, that all results from the crash of the energy market. And the crash of the energy market has devastated southern West Virginia in our economy. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let me ask you this as kind of a, a, a last a, a way to close this, because I'm, 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 I'm interested in the way that your professionals, the, the staff that work with you, have now kind of moved I, I know you brought in one of my good friends. You brought in Edward uh, Erfurt, who it, to me is the most brilliant urban designer I've ever I've ever worked with. I, I think he's a great guy. I don't know your anyone on your staff, but I'm I, I'm I'm interested in exploring the notion that you you've had Hazel and her team come to town. 
You've got the placemakers. You know, in Ranson, you had a whole bunch of different people you were corralling together. Um, that had to be a challenge for your staff. And I'm interested in, in how they handled that and then what things have been like since. You know, some of, this, some of the training that these guys do is actually moving the staff, too. I mean, the staff is sometimes the problem that we've got to overcome as well. Talk a little bit about how that's gelled together. Sure. And, uh, again, I think I was very lucky in the town planner that I inherited there in Thompson Station. Her name's Wendy Deach. She's a great planner. Um, she actually came from California uh, and then moved to Tennessee. And it was probably 10 or 15 years ago. And she actually had all these concepts in her head already. So it's like though she wasn't using them in practice, she was already already very well aware of what needed to happen to really you know create economic sustainability through a planning code. Um, so when I got there, I remember that one of the first questions I asked her was, "I'm like, what are the developers uh, telling you? What, what, what are you hearing from the development community and you know the public themselves about you know how Thompson Station's growing and what do they want to see change?" And then so she started actually going through all of these different things, and I was like, "Well, great. So now we have. I already know who we need to bring in to to, to start this process. And it, there was a learning curve there. We're still going through. We only adopted our code." Late last year, um, so you know, there's there's only been I guess nine months of us really working with it. Yeah. Uh, so again, there's still that learning process, but um, you know, trying to get at least staff members to buy into it was was very easy. And again, I was I was lucky with the planning staff that I had already. Yeah. It didn't hurt that that developers from several states away were phoning you the the morning after adoption to say, "Can we please annex in this couple thousand acres? We want to use your code." Right, Andy. Well. Frankly, I've had some staff turnover, and I've recruited, you know, some people that, like you said, really know what's going on. Um, for a city my size in the state of West Virginia, I probably have one of the most educated staffs because I really believe that if you, you know, there's this whole thing about wasteful government spending and everything else. I've heard of that. You know, <laughs> I, I have a different philosophy. I think that I think that we are a um, I think that we are a catalyst. I think that we are a business, and you have to pay to get the best talent. And we've done that. I mean, we have people with, you know, I have a law degree. We have people with master's degrees. We have people with, um, you know, uh, CPA was my finance director. We really try to pay for talent. And I, that is one thing that I noticed after we adopted this is that I needed more talent to be able to figure out how to do this because I could not do it alone anymore. I had I have other aspects of the city to run other than planning. Like to make sure that sewer lines don't back up. Right. The police responds in the in a timely fashion. I mean, planning is one of the most important aspects, in my opinion, of city plant or cities because it affects everything, from snow plowing to maintenance to police response time to speeding. I always tell my police chief, if someone is speeding, that's my fault because I didn't design the road correctly. It's Amen. not your fault. Yeah. So that has been a change. So, but the other thing I will say is that after placemakers wrapped up with their contract. I didn't drop them. I kept them on retainer for a, a couple years afterwards and I sent every development application to them to say, can you review this to make sure that we're that we're meeting all the requirements which also helped my staff get educated in the process as well because they could see the review letters and comments and they would start picking up on it. Huge. I, I want to close by asking you a question, Hazel. Grab the mic. Um, and this is a little bit off topic, but la last year, um, no, I'd love her to sing. The the headliner for the uh, Grand Forks downtown 
Association. Uh, I, I don't know what they call that thing. They're, they're Downtown Day. Downtown Day. Yeah. Uh, was this guy from Strong Towns? And <laughs> you. He did okay. You know, it was all right. I, I heard but you shook things up. Then they really upped their game this year, and they had Hazel Boris as the the headline of their big get together. I, I just want your impression of Grand Forks. Oh, I love that place, and uh, the reasons why are way too many to cover in the minutes we have left, but two of the biggest reasons are the great bones of that city. I mean, they have come through so much in the last 19 years since their big flood and fire that devastated so much of downtown, And but the spirit of the community was all about coming together and putting it back together and, and doing it in a way that really preserves uh, the heritage and the urbanism and the economy. So that's one big thing. But the other big thing are the downtown leaders. I mean, I was really sought out and found by a restaurant owner, yeah. you know, who, who uh, he's just such a great urbanist. And he, he and his fellow downtown business leaders really have a vision for the downtown, and they're seeing it through, which is just very fun. It, it, I, I, want to, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Winnipeg and Grand Forks and mm-hmm. Fargo. Th- these are places that, you know, when you're in the northeast of this country or you're out in California and you say, Winnipeg, they're like, that's like Cowtown in the middle of nowhere. I, I find all three of those places to be just fantastic examples of kind of great thinking in building great cities. Do you, do you, can you just talk a little bit about those three in particular? I mean, just the vibe and the feel and like, why are they, why are they so special, you think? Well, Winnipeg and Fargo and Grand Forks are all winter cities and they, they are lucky because they're slow growth cities. So they don't boom and they don't bust. And that, that's been really very handy for them. But they're also very, very local. It's far away to anybody else and they're the closest cities to each other. So they have incredible local talent pools for everything from their planning and architecture to, you know, their music scene and their their art and everything. Yeah. Art. art It is. Yeah. But they're also walkable winter cities. So Winnipeg is the third coldest city of its size on earth, but I don't have a car there because I just walk and, oh, well, our family has one car, so I, but I don't usually drive it. Yeah. You know, so it's a place that if that first my, if that first three steps out your door, has a bit of draw, something out there that you love to do, that useful walk, then you'll spend your time on foot year-round, and it's a great, all three of them are great places to live for that reason. Joe, you been to CNU before? My first year. Is it really? Andy? I came for one day when I met Hazel, <laughs> back at, I think, maybe in Atlanta? Yes. 2010. So this is your first, like, big CNU, too. You're here the whole time? He doesn't have the red sticker on his. <laughs> I, I, I am here the whole time. I, I do think that uh, at some point I think it would be interesting to, and I've told Hazel this, to, and maybe not from us because we're small, I think it would be interesting to have a session here from the city managers and those who have to sell this uh, to oh, yeah, the elected yeah. officials at CNU because I think there's some excellent ideas that are touted at CNU. And then sometimes there's the practical versus the reality versus no way in the world this is ever going to sure. happen in political reality. But I have to say, Mr. Strong Towns, I'm very disappointed that a city, <laughs> a city 
that has laid the foundation to become one of the strongest towns in America. The Mr. Strongtown has not been in my town I'm sorry. yet, and yeah. that is very I, I, disappointing. I have a standing invitation. Yeah, which has always been rejected. <laughs> so, uh, so I will welcome Mr. Strongtown anytime to my town, and I welcome any person that wants to make good quality community investment in our town because we do not do a pass-fail exam. We welcome you wholeheartedly and you can help make our community stronger. Well, I promise I will get there. Okay. <laughs> and, and I just have to say, because I'm so proud of both of these guys, that they're both here at the CNU this year to receive awards, which, you know, we won't talk about until, until they the get time them. comes. Yeah. But, you know, I think that they're so well-deserved and I'm just very proud of them both. All right. Hazel, Andy, Joe, thanks for taking the time and uh, sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.